Good morning. Today we're going to be reading from uh, John chapter 20, uh, verses 1 through 18. Uh, if you're using one of the Bibles and the chairs there in front of you, uh, you can find it on page 963. Hear the word of the Lord. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she went running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've put him. At that, Peter and the other disciple went out, heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there but he did not go in. Then, following him, Simon Peter also came. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. The other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, then also went in, saw, and believed. For they did not yet understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. But Mary stood outside the tomb, crying. As she was crying, she stood, or she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. So they said to her, Woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they've put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you are seeking? Supposing he was the gardener, she replied, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus told her, since I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and she told them what he had said to her. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Good morning. My name is Godwin, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, what an exciting morning to be able to reflect upon this passage in John and to think about Easter a little bit more, so that's what we're going to do together. Uh, and you know, over the years, <clears throat> over the years, I've traveled overseas quite a bit. I'm uh, ethnically from Sri Lanka, and so my parents, we would uh, get shipped off to Sri Lanka sometimes. We have family in England, in Australia, so we we were kind of a traveling family, which was enjoyable. And over the maybe the last 15 years, I've done some 
some travels that are more kind of missionary, um, missionary like. Not that I've been a missionary, but maybe visiting missionaries in place, uh, different places in the world. And I've noticed that sometimes, you know, it takes a big change in my circumstances to shake me out of my little world in order for me to see kind of the big picture. And that happens when I travel as well, especially in the last 10 or 15 years. And one of the things that I've seen, kind of that big picture that I've seen as we've traveled or I've traveled, is the unprecedented growth of the church. You may know that Christianity is the largest religion in the world. There's approximately 2 billion people that identify as Christians. Now, not all of them may be actual Christians, but it's interesting. It's astonishing uh, to think about this. Uh, And it's astonishing to think about not only how many identify themselves as Christians, but it's astonishing to consider how many are coming to Jesus year after year, decade after decade, century after century. You know, in the last 100 years, the growth spurt in Christianity around the world is absolutely unreal. Why is this happening? Why would modern people consider Jesus, this guy who lived 2,000 years ago, Why would we, with all of our technology and cell phones and easy access to an unbelievable amount of information, why would we choose in modern times, we're modern people, right? Why why would we choose to follow Jesus? Consider China for just a moment. Mid-19th century, the chairman Mao kicked uh, Christians out of the country. And today, we don't know how many, maybe 80 million Christians in secret churches. Just this morning, uh, I got a text from a good friend of mine who's planting a church in Kuwait City, and he said, hey, praise the Lord, we baptized six people this morning in Kuwait City, new converts in Kuwait City in the Middle East, right? Friends, why would any of these folks follow someone who lived 2,000 years ago? Maybe you're asking that question too. Maybe you've been dragged here on Easter morning. Maybe this is your tradition, this is what you do with your family. You come to Easter service. Um, I'm glad you're here. Uh, but what if, what if this moment, what if this service, what if this message was designed by God to kind of shake you out of your normal situation, your normal circumstance, just for a little bit, to maybe get you to consider some of life's bigger questions, like why do people follow Jesus still? Maybe that's why you're here this morning. What I want to contend with you this morning is that the resurrection of Jesus makes sense of a great many things, the good of life, the bad of life, the ugly of life. In other words, there's something uh, special about the resurrection that kind of clarifies and resolves and alleviates the tension that, that, that exists because of our sins and our difficulties and our pains and our darkness. So I want, want to point that out to you from this story, four ways Jesus' resurrection makes sense of all things. Now, if you're looking at your bulletin carefully or you've talked to me earlier in the week, I was really excited to preach a passage out of Job to you. Got to the end of the week, and for about two days, I was pretty sick. Uh, And so I had to kind of make a detour scripture-wise. And so I chose this passage. I preached uh, a version of the sermon before, and so I wanted to kind of uh, uh, bring that to you guys now, again, because of my sickness. So give me grace. Um, pray for me as I preach as well. I also owe a debt to Don Carson and Jeremy Rennie who have helped me to kind of understand this passage. So here's the first way the resurrection makes sense out of life. The resurrection makes sense out of a missing body. 
missing body. Um, that's, of course, what this story is all about, right? It's all about a missing body. Where is this body? We see in the first 10 verses, everybody's wondering, where is the body? Now, I want you to feel this morning the historical veracity of the Christian claim that says Jesus rose from the dead, okay? Because nobody has ever found Jesus' body. Think about that. Where did his body go? <laughs> Records show that there was a body hunt. There were authorities who set people, guards, to look for this body. Because, friends, historically speaking, that tomb was empty, right? Now, this is the heart of this narrative. Where in the world is this body? Now, they knew Jesus died. If you look back at, at uh, John chapter 19, it was very clear. The Romans were good at crucifixion. It was a high mortality rate. Uh, they put people on the cross. Everybody who came off the cross died. So Jesus actually died, and they made sure he was dead by piercing his side. You remember this part of the story. And normally the, the, the Romans, they would pile up the bodies of the crucified in a pit and then burn them. But in Jesus' case, as you might know, the disciples got his body and put his body in the tomb of a rich man named Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. That kind of brings us to our story here, John chapter 20, verse 1. And I love this story because there's kind of a lot of movements. There's a lot of movement in the story. The story begins with Mary Magdalene, notice, she's getting to the tomb. It's early in the morning, and she sees that the stone was removed. And she goes back to the disciples, and she's like, hey, guys, the body is gone. So here's the announcement. The body is gone. Where in the, where in the world is the body? Can you imagine if someone you loved died and the funeral home calls you and says, we don't know where the body is? Like, you would go bananas, right? You would absolutely explode. And so the guys take off, right? And apparently John wants you to know that he's faster than Peter. And just a, just a little, I'm going to sneak that in here for historical precedence or whatever. John is fast. And what they saw when they got to the tomb was astounding. Now look at this. It, it says that there were linen cloths, and these were used to wrap not only Jesus' head, but also his body. And they found these cloths folded up on the, the little table where he, his body was put. I mean, it's, it's interesting to me. It's just a little detail, but just little details like this fascinate me. So, so he got up. He rose from the dead. He got up. He unwrapped himself. And then he was like, you know what? I'm going to fold up these cloths and put them down before I go. Right? He's taking care of business. Interesting, right? So where is the body? Well, let me give you kind of the three main theories of where the body could have gone. Maybe, maybe they just got the wrong tune. Well, that's unlikely because Joseph of Arimathea knew his tomb. He had property there, right? So that doesn't make sense. Well, maybe the authorities stole the body. Maybe some Jewish leaders or some, some of the Roman authorities stole the body. Well, that doesn't make sense. They didn't have a good motive. In fact, producing the body could have destroyed early Christianity. So early Christianity was all about the resurrection, right? Or here's a third uh, kind of theory. Maybe the disciples took the body. Now, at first glance, this might make sense. I mean, hey, let's take the body and start talking about how Jesus rose from the dead, and all of a sudden we got a new religion. People are following us and giving us a lot of attention. That, okay, that might make sense. However, we know the sort of attention the disciples got was not good, right? They were persecuted. They were misunderstood. They were misrepresented everywhere they went, and they eventually their embrace of the resurrection eventually would lead to their own death. So, that's probably not it, not it either. So permit me to be a little philosophical this morning. Here's the beauty of Christianity. 
something that Francis Schaeffer has helped me to understand. Christianity is not a leap of faith. It's a step of faith. Christianity is not a leap of faith. It's a step of faith. Now, faith obviously is important. It's an important component of the Christian faith, but so is reason and history. So Christianity isn't a leap, so says Francis Schaeffer, I agree. It's a step of faith. It doesn't disregard reason. It doesn't disregard history. It asks the question, what is the most reasonable thing to believe? Considering reason, considering history. And so, friends, we've got to ask the question, in the absence of a body, without any compelling theories, what is the most reasonable thing to believe? Okay, so if you believe in God, then you must believe in the possibility that God could bend His own rules, in other words, the possibility of miracles. So, so what's the most reasonable thing to conclude, given the possibility of God, miracles, the absence of a body, and the absence of other compelling solutions? This is what leads me to believe Jesus is alive today. And I know many of you would agree. That's the first thing we see the resurrection makes sense of is, is this empty tomb and where's the body? Here's the second thing. The resurrection makes sense of the Old Testament. Look at verse 8 and 9. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first then also went in, saw, and believed. For they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Interesting. So, so first of all, they believed, but before that, they didn't understand that the Old Testament scriptures, that's what it means by scriptures there, the Old Testament scriptures prophesied that Jesus would rise again. So you got to put yourself in John and Peter's shoes, right? So they, they grew up learning and studying the Old Testament, uh, Israel's history. Their parents were teaching them. Rabbis in the synagogue were teaching them. It was an oral culture, so much of it was memorized. And so they had it in their minds. They had it in their hearts. Lots of commands, lots of these stories. They knew it all really well. But one thing they didn't understand is how do you put it all together? What's kind of that thread that pulls all of these stories together? Is any of this leading somewhere? Now, I would imagine many of you, maybe not all of you, but many of you have grown up in the church and you've heard all the stories. You've heard stories of Adam and Eve and you know Moses and the Ten Commandments and Noah's Ark and you've sung songs about this, right? Father Abraham and many sons, many sons. Or uh, here's, we're going a little deeper here. Um, the Lord told Noah to build him an... Beautiful. Is that salty? I think it's salty. <laughs> the big blue book, salty. So you're laughing. Um, so maybe you have fond memories of these songs and stories. I certainly do. Maybe some of you don't have fond memories. Um, but there it is, right? So, 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 friends, what if the thing that pulls these stories together, makes them meaningful, gives them focus and a power, is Jesus himself? What if he is the thread that makes sense out of those crazy Old Testament stories? What if Jesus' life, his death, his, yes, resurrection is the key that unlocks the Old Testament? Friends, that is what Peter and John felt in this moment in verse 8 and 9. Their eyes were opened. Everything they had learned from when they were kids, everything they had experienced with Jesus, walking along a dusty road, all of his teachings, all of, all of a sudden it kind of clicked. It all came together and they believed, as it says. What did they believe? What Jesus had been saying about himself all along and what the Old Testament said about him. I mean, picture this. They're, they're at the tomb and, and they're standing there and their jaws are, are hitting the floor, right? They, they just can't believe what they're seeing and, and, and then they're in the bright morning light of Easter, and then all of a sudden, 
God, through his spirit, allows them to see and put together all the puzzle pieces. And it just must have been so unbelievably refreshing. Like, I wish I was there with him, and I wish I would have had that moment too. All these prophecies from Psalm 16 and Isaiah 53 and Hosea 6, and the list goes on and on and on. They're standing there like, oh, that's about Jesus. Incredible, right? So listen, friends, all of those stories that may be tucked away in your mind and heart, all of them find their meaning, their power, their usefulness, their distinctiveness when you bring Jesus into the equation. None of those ancient stories have meaning or power apart from the person and work of Jesus. And this revelation happened to me too. I was a 19-year-old college student listening to Smashing Pumpkins and playing poker far into the night. And I've, I was on my, I can't remember the system now, but I was playing GoldenEye often as well. And these are the things that kind of marked my life. I, you know, I was an engineering student, but I didn't really make it to class too often. Uh, to the dismay of my parents, but they didn't know. So that was my life. So I was this punk kid, but I had this memory, this collection of ancient stories that were kind of ingrained into my soul by my parents, by my teachers growing up. Uh, Great stories, but I didn't know what to do with them. I didn't know how to put them together. They were just kind of good moral lessons. And then one day I kind of ran to the tomb, so to speak, and I investigated for myself, so to speak, and God opened my heart. And I saw that Jesus is the key. Have you, spiritually speaking, walked into the empty tomb with Peter and John? Have you had your eyes open, not just a new information, but that Jesus' resurrection fulfills the Old Testament prophecy and he is the thread that binds the story of God? Friends, do you see Jesus like Peter and John see Jesus? And if you don't yet, maybe you're like, hey, I I remember all those stories. I know what you're talking about. I remember that one song you just sang. But I don't get how Jesus is the culmination, the climax of this great book in front of us. Let me just encourage you, ask God right now for the spiritual eyes to see. He loves to answer that prayer. He does. Okay, number three, the resurrection makes sense of our grief. Make sense of our grief. Look at verse 10. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. Now, what that means is they went home. That seems kind of like a throwaway line, right? Kind of moving the story along, nothing to see here. But actually, there's something to see here. I want you to, I want you to see this because of who was at home. And to see that, I, I want you to flip back to John chapter 19, verse 25. So this is in the middle of Jesus being crucified, and he has all these little encounters with different people. Here's one of those encounters, chapter 19, verse 25. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved, that's John, standing there, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. And he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. Isn't that interesting? So let's go back to chapter 20, verse 10. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. They went home, to John's home. So John has a new mom, right? And Mary's got a new son named John. And as the narrator of this gospel, John, what is he saying? He's saying, listen, I get to tell Mary, my new mom, the the mother of Jesus, I get to tell her some good news. You see, from the beginning of Jesus' life, there were prophecies given to Mary about Jesus. 
He was going to be special, right? But God's plan was going to break her heart. In fact, at his dedication in the temple, Simeon prophesied some things about Jesus. And I just want you to imagine you are a, a, a new mom and you're bringing your baby boy to the temple. And this is what Simeon told her, told Mary, a sword will pierce your heart because of him. Can you imagine that? What does that mean? I don't know. Well, 33 years later, we come to find out exactly what that prophecy meant. A sword did pierce her heart. As she saw him on trial, she saw him unjustly beaten, as she saw him crucified. A sword would pierce her heart. But this morning, right? So chapter 20, verse 10, this morning, she was going to get some different news. Her son, John, had some good news. Her boy is alive. Imagine how that must have comforted her. The resurrection of Jesus not only changes the narrative for Mary, changes her story, but it changes our narrative too, right? Because Jesus is the forerunner of resurrection life. Everyone who is united to Jesus by faith will run along the same path as him. So suffering first and then glory later. And so every Christian who has already suffered and died will follow Jesus in uh, his resurrection. They will have new bodies. That's why this is such a spectacular day today. And I know some of you have lost loved ones in the last 12 months. Easter conjures up emotions for you because you remember who should be sitting at the table. But those of you who have lost loved ones who are genuinely Christians, listen, we can confidently say to you this morning, what happened to Jesus will one day happen to your loved one. What Mary felt in her heart on this blessed day as John runs home and tells her the good news, you're going to feel as well. Isn't that good news? And so for all of us who have said goodbye to a dear Christian loved one, there is truly never a goodbye to be said, is there? Because every goodbye in this age has a corresponding hello in the next age. This is the great Christian hope. And we do not grieve as those who have no hope. Our grief is mingled with, with hope and, and this joy. Because, hey, now they're with Jesus, right? And the best is yet to come. So, the resurrection of Jesus makes sense of our grief because it assures us that our grief is temporary and that joy is what will be our main, main uh, situation going forward. Now, we got to ask the question, whatever happened to Mary Magdalene? She started the story. Okay, we got that. Where does it go from there? We'll look at verses 11 through 18. Here, Mary Magdalene finally sees the risen Lord. Jesus comes onto the scene. And here's the, the, the last thing I wanted to point out. The resurrection makes sense of our personal darkness. Now, to understand what's going on here, you need to know who Mary Magdalene is. You remember who she was? You remember her history, her story? She was demon-possessed. She was an adulteress, right? Uh, she was one hot mess. Uh, if you uh, are familiar with the show The Office, she's more Meredith Palmer than Pam Beasley, okay? So uh, she's a loose woman. You wouldn't want your husband to be hanging around her, right? I mean, that's just who she is. Her whole life was a tragedy, full of darkness and sin. Even after meeting Jesus, even after those demons left her, I would imagine she would still had a lot of personal demons to deal with, a lot of baggage, right? And here she is, walking to the tomb in the dark of the morning, about to experience the dawning of the new creation era as the first witness to Jesus being raised from the dead. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. Notice what happens. She's crying, so she doesn't understand yet what's going on. She hasn't obviously seen Jesus. The angel kind of nudges her, hey, why are you crying? 
It's interesting. Jesus asked her the same question a little later. She sees Jesus, doesn't recognize him, right? She thinks he's the gardener. <laughs> She's like, whoa, what? The gardener, okay. Uh, and, and then she says to him with, with a little bit of punchiness, she says, hey, tell me where you put him. She's assuming that this is the guy who has stolen the body. Then look at verse 16. It's one of the most tender moments in the Gospel of John. Jesus said to her, Mary. Wow. Jesus said to her, Mary. Mary, it's me. Light begins to dawn on her. The scale falls off her eyes. She starts to understand, and she cries out, Rabboni, which means teacher, right? Isn't it funny when you're, you're puzzled, you're frustrated because you don't understand something, you're beating your head against the wall, uh, and the answer's right in front of you? You know, you've lost your keys, you're walking around, you end up like getting irritated and yelling at your kids, and then you're like, oh, it's in my pocket the whole time. Whoops, right? Has that happened to you? It's happened to me. Maybe, maybe. Um, well, that's kind of what's happening here. Mary kind of understands. Everything's, everything kind of shifts a little bit, and all of a sudden Mary understands like, oh my gosh, this is Jesus. This is Jesus. But friends, my question here as I'm looking at this account, why choose, why did God choose her? Why did God choose her to be the witness of the resurrection? Not only was it in the first century um, risky um, that she was a woman, but she was a loose woman. Why was she the first witness of the resurrection? Well, I think it's because her story needs to be told, right? Because Easter is not just for cleaned up people, you know, hanging out on Sunday mornings with their nice dress robes. Because Easter is the only hope for prostitutes and terrorists and racists and rapists right alongside all of the respectable sins, gossips and frauds and the self-righteous. Only Jesus, only Jesus can make sense of our personal darkness. Some of you have carried incredible shame and guilt to do perhaps to the past it's addictions that you've been involved in. Maybe you've slept around. Maybe you've just hated God. How do you deal with this? How do you deal with that weight? I want you to remember Jesus' words earlier in the Gospel of John. John chapter 9, he says, I am the light of the world. And when he says that, what he means is not only that he exposes who you really are before a holy God, but he brings light and life to you. He's the only one. He says in John chapter 12, I am the resurrection and the life. Only he can provide forgiveness. Only he can provide new life. Only he can turn your story around and make sense of your personal darkness. You know, the resurrection itself is proof of that, right? The thing about this, the, the darkness, the unjustness, the, the horribleness of the cross. This is the greatest injustice in human history. And yet, by way of a resurrection, Jesus turns, or God turns that around and serves it up for good, right? Uh, what an incredible thing. And we see God doing that in the lives of sinners as well. I have one more thing to say. I want you to notice, you know, it, the, the message here isn't, hey, Jesus is alive, Mary. Cool. Uh, go on from here. Notice there's more going on. Look at verses 17 and 18. Jesus says, don't cling to me. Since I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and she told them what he had said to her. 
don't hold on to me, Mary. Like, there's more happening here. Like, don't cling to me now because I'm about to leave. I'm about to ascend up to God and go tell the brothers, what is the message here? I'm returning to the Father. His movement out of the grave is just the beginning, right? There's more. What is the message, friends, of Easter? Is it Jesus is alive? Well, yeah, absolutely. But there's more. There's more to this message. The message of Easter is that Jesus is alive, and therefore he is Lord. He has conquered death. He has conquered the grave. And so as the vindicated conqueror, he ascends into heaven. He's now sitting at God's right hand as Lord. That is the message of Easter. The resurrection points forward to his reign. Easter is not just the end of the story. It's actually the beginning of the story. And friends, as the reigning Lord, what is Jesus doing right now? He's raised, he's gone up to heaven, sitting at the right hand of God. He's Lord, he's reigning. What is he doing right now? You know, if we were to flip over just a couple pages into the book of Acts, we would get a glimpse of what Jesus is doing right now. Let me just summarize quickly for you. You know, as the early church is formed, as they received the Holy Spirit, they took this Easter message to Jerusalem. What did they say? What was their message? Their message was, hey, that Jesus guy that you knew, in fact, some of you crucified him, that guy is alive. That was the message. And not only that, their message, if you look at Acts chapter 2 and Peter's first sermon, his message is that Jesus reigns. He's Lord and he's Christ. And the people, people were cut to the heart. They were kind of embarrassed. Oh man, we killed him. They felt badly because of their sin. And they asked the apostles, what should we do? And the apostles said, repent and believe. Friends, why are modern people turning to Jesus? Is it because the church is super cool? Is it because the church has like this grand recruiting strategy that's amazing? Uh, no, like absolutely not. We're a hospital for sinners, right? We are more like a quasi-dysfunctional family reunion than anything else. We are sinners. We are being transformed by God's grace, by His Spirit, into the image of Jesus slowly, one glory at a time, one degree of glory at a time. So why do people keep coming? Here's why. Because Jesus is still reigning and summoning people to himself. That's the only reason. That's the only reason. And as this reigning Jesus is proclaimed by the church, he still summons people by name from all over the world. It brings me back to John chapter 12 when, when Jesus comes to the death of his best friend Lazarus and everybody's weeping. And he had just gotten done teaching that he's the resurrection and the life. And he's like, I'm going to show it now. What does he do? He stands there and he says, Lazarus, come out. He calls him by name. And that picture of physical resurrection is a picture for all of us of our spiritual resurrection. This is what he does. He calls people by name from all over the world. Even today, he's calling people by name. Mary, Ahmet, Zhang, Priya. Jimmy, 20 years ago, he called my name, 19-year-old kid in college. He summoned me. I was a religious kid. I knew the stories. I found them interesting. But then he called my name. He beckoned me to repent of my sins. He showed me that his wrath is coming against me. And he told me to trust in Christ alone. I remember when I first met my daughter in the hospital, oldest daughter. Uh, out of nothing, all of a sudden, I felt love. 
I mean, it, it, was, it was kind of strange. I think it's a little different from a, for a father and a mother. Uh, it went from kind of this idea of having a daughter to then all of a sudden like, whoa, I, w- I will die for you. Where did that come from, right? <laughs> well, that's, that's what happened when God summoned me. When he called me, I went from, that's an interesting story, cool, to, I love Jesus, whoa. And he loves me. And he has set his love upon me before the foundation of the, the, the earth. He owns me, and I'm his. Listen, I wasn't reasoned into the kingdom of God. I wasn't pushed into the kingdom of God. Jesus, the risen Savior, who is now Lord, he grabbed me, he summoned me to himself. And I said, okay. And I wonder this morning, maybe that's happening to you right now this morning. Is God summoning you to himself? Is he giving you new eyes to see? I'm praying that God is going to be doing this to you right now. And if he is summoning you, would you repent of your sins? Would you turn away from your sins? Would you believe upon the risen, reigning, returning Lord Jesus? Would you do that today? Amen. Let's take a moment to consider this passage as we uh, continue in our service uh, this morning.